parasite. An idea. A single idea from the human mind can build cities. An idea can transform the world and rewrite all the rules. Which is why I have to steal it. Never recreate from your memory. Always imagine new places. He's hiding something and we need to find out what that is. We gotta break out of here. Give him the kick! This was not a part of the plane! Welcome back to Whose Film Is It Anyway with uh, your host, Josh Page and Steve Molina. And this week we watched Inception, which means it's going to be a doozy. (laughs) That is for sure. Hopefully our minds do not get as mended as in this movie. As always, like I said, I'm your host, Josh Page. And with me as always, Steve Molina. How are you, Steve? Oh, you know, living the dream in this fun era we live in this is really a terrible terrible time but we're not gonna not gonna talk about it yeah no this is a happy place we're gonna talk about happy things like people who can't see their children because they're accused of murdering their wives you know what people who need to destroy their father's empire who have to get manipulated to destroy their father's empire you know happy thoughts or for people stuck in a realm where to them in their psychosis uh time is a slow slow eternity where you just become old and uh there is really no meaning Wait, to anything else going on an old what was the line an old man filled with regret <laughs> <laughs> waiting to die alone just waiting and waiting to begging for sweet death as an old old man there's a lot to make fun of in this movie and there. we'll try and stay away but but chances are we're probably going to laugh at some absurdity. Well, at some point I mean, there, there's only so much we can take away from this without saying, like, you know, how 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 can we not just evaluate it on a just a real personal level? You know, it's a, not a name in a serious way, but it's just saying, you know what, like, no, this no, is no. really how much tuna fish are we really getting into? Because this might be in our in the terms of a uh, George St. Giglin and Gil Faison, this this is probably the most amount of tuna that. Chris Nolan's ever tried to cram into one space until Tenant. We don't really know for right now, but Tenant looks like it's going to be a lot of tuna fish. There's a lot of tuna going on here. Yeah, this movie, uh, to quote Tywin Lannister from Game of Thrones, it won't die. And I respect that. Do you remember uh, your first time watching this movie? Um, Yeah, so I remember seeing this in the theater. With a friend from high school, um, 
he kind of just wanted to go on a whim. Um, I think because it was being billed as, you know, the director of the Dark Knight. It was just a big movie. It was getting good early buzz. And I went with a friend and I remember um, kind of sitting there being blown away. And I really didn't know. It was the kind of thing that was so layered. It, no, <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> It, so. was so, it was just so much to take in that I remember being like, I don't know what I witnessed, but I knew that like what I witnessed was just like extraordinary. And I, I just, I didn't say those words, but I remember that feeling and looking over my friend who was like, yo, like that sucked. And I was like, oh, okay. And it's kind of just. <laughs> we clearly did not vibe in this movie. Like, and it was just kind of like, I, I can. I remember just that moment at the end where I felt like blown away and not knowing why. Like I didn't really, I, it's not that I thought it was, I did think it was good, but it was just so much. I was overwhelmed. That's the, really just the word. I'm this movie is very, it's very overwhelming. overwhelming. I can, but I can remember it coming out on DVD later, I guess that year or around that Christmas. And my family got together at my, my parents' house and we were all watching. And my oldest brother was the one who was like really into it. And I remember not so much my the words my family said, but I remember what kind of like one by one they were all kind of tuning out. It was kind of just, just like, what's going on here? Like it was just this huge molt of like, not confusion, but it was kind of just like it's a lot of zigzagging back and forth. It's like Charlie when he's trying to figure out, you know, um, where the mail should be. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you saw me doing the gesture, but it's just with Carol. Yes. Who is Pepe Silvia? That's who they're trying to, they're trying to figure out who Pepe Silvia is. And I'm like, guys, you have to wait till the end. And Pepe Silvia is not even going to be the point of it. You know, it's going to be about. Not only do all these people exist, but they've been asking where their mail is for weeks. <laughs> um, and that's basically how it's it was. always sunny reverence. Number one. Oh, reverence. Number one. We should start flagging these, but, um, it's so I, I can remember loving this movie when I first saw it, not knowing why. And I remember like, you know, my friends saying it was sucked and then my family being confused and feeling like, okay, I feel like this is a special movie that's one I have to keep revisiting to really appreciate it. And that's actually how it's felt over the years. It's like it's not like I immediately loved it in the beginning. I was just so overwhelmed. And then in time I realized like exactly how brilliant it is. I agree. But please. To um, some extent. <laughs> yeah. But please, um, share a Share with uh, the audience your share with the class my first, your first experience. Time. Your your inception, Jerry. My inception, Jerry. It was <laughs> quite a dream. <laughs> quite a dream. Oh, no. Terrible. Take a lap. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sunny I'll tell you, me. I got quite the kick. Um, oh. I got quite <laughs> the kick out of this movie. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I can't believe I'm I'm laughing. This is terrible. Terrible. Take a lap. I remember seeing it in theaters as well, 10 years ago, if you could believe that. 10 years from this recording. I mean, give or take a couple months, but it's 2020. I went with a uh, group of friends, actually, one of which was a person I was interested in at the time. So it became kind of like... Romantically. Yeah, so it became kind of like a whole thing where... You know, at certain points of the movie, I wasn't even paying attention because it was one of those things of like, oh man, hand holding. Oh my God, what is this? You're getting a handy during the, the theater, you know? I told you, I got quite the kick out of the movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but uh, then after that first time, I was like, all right, I love, I didn't pay too much attention. So I got to see this again. So I literally went back a couple of nights later by myself to watch the movie again. <laughs> 
Now, let me ask you something. There was, and we can cut this for the record, but I just have to ask you while we're on the subject. Have you ever been on a, we'll say a date, or uh, in a date-like scenario where you are romantically interested or involved with someone, and you go see a film, and you're so engrossed with the film that when uh, said other person has tried to initiate anything, hand-holding, you're like, in your mind, you're like, no, no, hang on. I'm way too focused in what's going on that I'm not even, I'm not even acknowledging you right, right now. Uh, happened that has happened before absolutely because, <laughs> i think absolutely. that's what that's what separates the the normal person and then the people like us <laughs> well let me tell you i was in high school at the time so like you know this was like my first relationship so like of course i was gonna pay attention yeah, uh, no, to her but instead but then like you know to complete in a complete contrast the following year i was still with her and it was the year of the artist and oh, i i okay. went to go see it i was like ready to go alone i told her flat out like you don't have to come to this movie <laughs> and she was you like ready to leave her i was like literally you're not gonna like this movie it is a silent <laughs> movie she just like could not accept the fact that i was gonna see a movie alone and was like no it's sad it's pathetic i'm coming with you i know that feeling and i know what it feels like to come on the other side and realize it's okay to go to the movie alone. she literally <laughs> fell asleep on my lap in the fucking movie theater <laughs> oh that's incredible shout outs to you nicole if you're watching <laughs> no shout out that's incredible um oh fuck it was crazy that's um yeah when when um the year we started dating, Robin and I went to go see Martin Scorsese's Silence. Um, That's an amazing movie. And Robin and I went out, and um, she loves movies just as much as I do. She's just, you know, she's in a, her own path, and I'm on my own path, and that's great. And sometimes our paths collide. She, the Inception's her favorite Nolan movie, so it's, you know, it's great. But we went to go see that movie, and like an hour, maybe almost an hour and a half in, I'm I'm literally, I'm literally at the edge of my seat. We're in the theater in Island 16. I think we were some of the only people in there. And she was like, how much longer is this? And I was like, I have no idea. She was like, sat and paused. And she's like, I may go to the car. And I was like, all right, cool. I'll meet you when it's over. That's how like engrossed I was. And that wasn't even like the halfway point of that film. But normally I'd be like, yo, when's this going to end? Which is what Robin was feeling an hour, hour and a half in. I'm sitting there by almost hour three. And I'm like, yes where is this going and then it ended and it was just that moment of infatuation is something that um <laughs> is the next level for a lot of people it was really something yes not recommended for a first date or for a date movie in general just just watch it honestly. nor is inception because a lot of people this isn't <laughs> i you know when uh you kill even a projection of your wife on screen it's not typically a good date night <laughs> but yes let's take the deep dive i feel like this is the film to mention if only for what you and i are doing with this evaluation of christopher nolan that this is the film of all of his films to date to mention in terms of his not just his career shifting in the way that we talked about with the dark knight was his career shifting but um in terms of his artistic goals i feel like this was literally his I don't know what you want to call it. This was his golden goose. This was the movie that he had in his pocket for years. He was waiting to like drop. Well, that's one of my notes. He had been writing this script for 10 years. 
before right. he actually made it. And The Dark Knight was a turning point, but I think that this movie propelled him into the next level. Um, I think what the what the the key. I think the key difference between it, that earning that kind of legacy, especially for Nolan, is really that because this is the first time he reached that level in, in a completely original way. Like with like like we said last time, like with Dark Knight, what he did so well is he took everything he was trying to say with who he is as a filmmaker and apply it to comic book logic. He was trying to take a comic book story and tell it in his way. Where this is a film he had in his like I said, he's like you said, he's just he's ten years in the making that he was thinking about it and it's literally just one of the most unique to date one of the most unique and original ideas ever seen by the likes of film you know what i mean and the way it's influenced film and not just the way it's shot or but the way it's scored and the way that it's put together and it's just everything about it is influential and it's um achieves what it needs to do without being anything else other than his vision you know what i mean it, it completely exists on his own feet you know Completely. And you mentioned the score. Let's just talk about that now before we forget. I mean, I know I keep saying this every week, but <laughs> Hans Zimmer outdoes um, himself in this movie. I will wait to, I will revoke this statement if I feel otherwise in the, in the coming weeks. But I think that out of Nolan's filmography, this is Hans Zimmer's best score. Yeah. I um, believe did he win the Oscar for this? Uh, let me check. Let's back. Let's back. No, he did we, not. He was nominated. Uh, who did he lose to? I'll say it's justifiable. All right, and he lost to Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross for the, for social, the social network. network. Oh my god! <laughs> All right, scratch our plan from before. We're doing, <laughs> we're doing David Fincher next. Oh no, we, we can't. No, not next. It's gonna be too dark. We will both Oof. kill ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we were both... just talking off the air about how uh, <laughs> how draining Christopher Dolan has uh, become. So oh. you want to get into uh, some pre-production and production news? Well, I, would, I only I, have production stuff. I, I would love to. Good, because I'm not really given much of a choice. Good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, fuck you, buddy. Hey, guy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just talk about the rig system that they have developed for the sets of this movie in general. Um, like the bar in the hotel, which is the, small, which is the smallest feat that they had to tackle, the one that uh, Cobb and Fisher are in. Oh, I know the one well. Yeah, that bar tilts. Like the set actually tilted 20 to 25 degree angles. The uh, set I mean, is the just actual... so mechanical and meticulously planned. It's uh, crazy. It's more than just that rotating room that Joseph Gordon-Levitt fights in. Well, let's talk about the hotel room, yeah. Go for it. Uh, surprise, surprise. Nolan got the idea from 2001 A Space Odyssey, the centrifuge set. Kubrick was one of uh, Nolan's bigger influences. <laughs> Kubrick is a huge influence. I think we've mentioned him on every podcast. But the hotel hallway that spins is literally 100 feet. They like wow. made an entire set and then put it had to be put on eight different rings that were moved by motors underneath them i mean that's probably that's probably maybe it's just because i've seen it so many times in behind the scenes videos but it's that's got to be the most impressive visual set piece i mean that just whole thing is just i've never seen anything like it and joseph gordon levitt actually did the stunts true i know form. that 
I love that. I, I mean, I, I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I think he's very underrated. I think that he's one of those actors who hasn't had the right projects to propel him in terms of showcasing how good he really is. He's had a good career. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not denouncing what he's done, but. He's um, an anomaly to me because he is so good, but it's like, where are you? Like you've directed I, a movie absolutely. that was good. You did like, he's done a lot. And then he just kind of so vanished much. in the mid, like 2016, 2017, he just vanished. Um, but the set design, and I want to get into this while we talk about the plot, but because there are notable scenes here that I can remember watching and looking up like behind the scenes videos that how much of how, how authentic this movie is in terms of like what it accomplished. Like the, I, I don't know how much CG they use. I'm sure in like bigger landscapes when they had to show the, like, the, the, the walls crumbling and the buildings falling down. Like I'm sure there was a lot of CGI. There had to be, but it's at the same time. It, it's so the much. Snow falling. The, did that, did you just say that? Well, I'm well. I was saying the buildings crumbling and the snow falling. No, I mean, that's part. that was all real. <laughs> so the snow falling, I actually didn't know. It was the snow falling. They literally dropped bombs on top of uh, mountains so that the snow would fall down. And that's the fortress, actually, I, that's actually amazing. And the fortress they actually built in Calgary. Um, I knew it's that. A, it's like they literally it had no interior but they built a wooden exterior and they blew it up yeah. and then it didn't capture the according to nolan it didn't capture the tower imploding the way he wanted it so mm -hmm. they made a model a 40 foot a 45 foot model of this fortress and they blew it that up and again, they didn't get the tower to fall the way he wanted it. So they did it <laughs> again. Because what I was going to say is what is impressive about Nolan in general, and this is, you know, we'll just, we'll just dive into this as we go along. But it's really just, uh, again, it's that knack for the prosthetic. It's, the, it's for the actual physical construction of what he uses over nolan, the cgi he, he, nolan he is the man who will do it if he can do it in camera he will do it in camera he does he not will. like virtual effects the thing is we're in a desensitized age you could take probably and maybe i'm being fair but like you could take seven out of ten people if not eight out of ten people and be like is this in the last two questions they'll say is this a scene with notable cgi and if so does it bother you I think it would be a higher chance of that they would notice it was CGI and that the second chance would be, no, it doesn't bother me. And most of us have learned to just kind of write it off. But like with his movies, it's just, uh, I can't think of even many examples where he really heavily uses CGI because he doesn't use it for things like um, uh, creatures or characters or things that are extremely noticeable um, that are difficult to pull off. He uses them in very, in minuscule ways that are very admirable. He uses CG to add to an explosion, not to make the explosion. Yeah, or in this, uh, or in this movie, for example, when they go to Limbo, the city that Cobb and everyone walks through—that huge architectural area grid—that's a real place in right. uh, Morocco. But through CG, he moved buildings closer to the shore and made them a little bit more decrepit. He sure. took an existing shot and then tweaked it to fit his needs. Or, yeah, even, or even the train. And it's a truck that they dressed as a train, but they literally had it driving through 
the streets of downtown LA smacking other cars. And that's the point I was just about to make. Cause I, I remember watching the behind the scenes and seeing like how they shot that scene and seeing that it was, even if it's just a model, you're still making it look like it's really happening. You're still literally banging cars in an organic way so that they move in a natural way. You could have done Inception and probably saved a chunk of the budget by doing it in CGI, a lot of it in CGI. But part of what makes this movie an experience is because it's like, okay, this isn't just something you write off because it was done in computers. It's like, no, this is this feels real. It feels authentic because it is. One, I only have like one more thing. Let's talk sure. about the Oscars. It was nominated for uh, eight Oscars. It won four of them. It won Best Sound Mixing, Best Visual Effects, which we already talked about, Best Sound Editing, and Best Cinematography. This is oh. uh, Wally Pfister. My man. My man took the gold. He got the gold. This is it, his... Uh, he did everything what? Post uh, ins- um, Insomnia? Or did he shoot Memento as well? I know we had talked about it because I'd made a note. It was the first time I saw his name and I was like, yo. That's oh, he my did. Name. He, uh, he was the on, cinematographer right? on Memento. Cool. So from All Memento right. to Inception, he was the cinematographer. Uh, it was also I'm nominated... It was also nominated for uh, Best Production Design, Best Original Score. We already talked about that. Best Original Screenplay, which is not surprising. What? Wait a minute. What did it lose to, Best Original Screenplay? It lost to David Seidler, who wrote The King's Speech. Uh, I mean, that's... All right. All right. I don't want to talk about it. I'm a King's Speech fan, but I just don't... I don't want to talk about it. It was also nominated for Best Picture but it lost to The King's Speech. It's other nominated. Oh, The King's Speech. It it was also nominated (laughs) amongst 127 Hours, Black Swan, The Fighter, The Kids Are All Right, Social Network, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. So that's like a pretty stacked year. I want to say, and I I just don't want to keep diverting, but it's just, I have to say that out of the Oscars, which are always debatable, but... That was probably one of my favorite years. For that's the a very good, versatile that's a, list. That's a good lineup of all different kinds of genres, of all different kinds of films. So, I mean, I can't blame, I don't know. It's a hard line. I, I, every which way you look. I mean, I, I don't love all of those nominees, but like, it's just a, that's a, that's a good, diverse lineup. Like, you don't see many years that are stacked up that, that well, in my opinion. Uh, 2000. 9, 10, and 11, I think, are very versatile because they were still feeling the backlash from uh, from the, the Dark, Dark Knight. Man. I just want to go back for a minute. Sure, I do yeah, have yeah. one more note. Um, no, yeah, make another note. For the role of Cobb, um, there were two other people in contention, Brad Pitt and Will Smith. Wow. And no shot wow. at Leo, but I really think Brad Pitt probably would have been so no shot at you i think you're wrong i think DiCaprio was just he in this role and he does his DiCaprio. come on man you know how i feel about the man but he, i also I, he does his dicaprio in this movie i, I feel was, like i i just feel like it could have brought more subtlety and charisma to the role that is just like lacking from leo who's Feels like, I feel like he's just whining sometimes. I'm going to make a controversial statement. I think that... Please, actually, I just made a very controversial one. I think that Will Smith 
would have been the one, again, just hear what I'm saying here, to draw in the bigger crowds. I think with that man's enigmatic kind of energy and his all over the place and his go-getter attitude, again, not knocking Will Smith, I love the man, but that's the kind of energy that I feel like people like my family watching, for example, instead of rather me confused, would have been more just enamored with the performance that it wouldn't have been, that the, the confusion wouldn't have been as much of a distraction. You know what I'm saying? I completely agree. I also feel like it's just, it's just funny and interesting given Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that Pitt and Leo were once like in competition for the same roles. Which is really funny in hindsight. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, you want to get into the movie? Let's, let's dive in. Let's, let's. We open on a restless tide. Waves are crashing down hard on the rock within the sea. There is an air of foreboding. All the more curious, a man we will come to know as Don Cobb, Leonardo DiCaprio, laying unconscious on the shore. Maybe this is what happened to Jack after Rose left him. A pair just, of security. <laughs> I'm sorry. Who knows? Who? Uh, I would love to see Titanic smash cut to this. To Inception. Oh, but let's not. Let's. That'd let's, be amazing. That'd be incredible. A pair of security guards stumble across the washed-up cop and drag him to a mansion on top of the hill. The security guards walk into a majestic dining room and whisper in a very, very old man's ear that he has as a guest, Cobb, a guest that has asked for the old man by name. Cobb is dragged into the dining room and sits across the old man. Cobb begins to eat. I would like to say eats furiously, like, you know, he hasn't really eaten in weeks, but, you know, whatever. We're not going to go into what the time Who knows? Time in this film, as time is the consistent thing in all of Nolan stuff, we don't know what it is. It's just, it, it's, we can't really talk about it. The old man, however, is looking over the only items found on Cobb when apprehended, a gun and a metal top. For the first time, the old man comes into focus. It is Mr. Sato Ken Watanabe. Sato tells Cobb that he knew a man with a top like this from a dream long ago. As the top spins, so does the setting. The dining hall over much the same as before, but inhabited by different men. In the, uh, in the room is Cobb, only this time in a suit. Sato, who is young, and Arthur, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. As Sato uh, eats, Cobb asks, What is the most resilient parasite? bacteria a virus an intestinal worm uh what mr cobb is trying to say an idea resilient highly contagious once an idea has taken hold in the brain it's almost impossible to eradicate an idea that is fully formed fully understood that sticks right in there somewhere in the world in which we inhabit ideas are not only powerful, but ripped to be taken or implanted in someone's head. It is, in there, it is therefore imperative to protect yourself from infiltration, which is what Cobb and Arthur are doing. Ah, Let's dear. get into that for two seconds. Just like imagine being in this world, okay? Like your brain is, can literally be targeted, you know? like company this is corporate espionage on another level 
a company is literally coming to penetrate your mind to steal your deepest secrets. Um, like, I mean, the trailer said, I remember, I specifically, because I remember watching the trailer over and over again, that said the trailer, it said, your mind is the scene of the crime. So, like, it's a great hook for a movie. It almost feels like something as a throwback to, like, Hitchcock or something. Yeah, it's just a crazy notion, and maybe it relates to the fears of the, you know, security system the world is under right now. But, like, the fact that our minds are really the only place that are our own in the real world are no longer safe. Nothing is safe in this world. Absolutely. It feels a little like minority report in that regard. In this meeting, they are pitching themselves as men able to teach Sato how to lock up his brain. Their pitch is quickly dismissed as Sato leaves the room with a villainous grin. I like, I like that wording there, villainous grin. Walking along the top of the mansion's stone walls, Cobb and Arthur make it clear that Cobb is there to steal something from Sato. As we cut to a revolutionary zone, we see Cobb, Arthur, and Sato sleeping, revealing that the mansion is in a dream. What's more, Arthur tells Cobb, he, Sato, knows. Cobb, undeterred, is sure that he can ascertain the asset. On his way down the stone path, he comes across Maul, Marianne Cotillard. Her first line is, if I jump, will I survive? Very notable first line of the film. So you know that she's going to be uh, completely safe. This woman, nuts throughout the whole movie. Oh. I arguably, I, there's the argument that could be made. It's a projection. So like, it's not really like a person. Like it's a caricature of a person. But still, this caricature is just a lot. She really feels artificial, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Like it's not—it's definitely on purpose. Like she feels like an android version of Cobb. Like it's like this is an, an interpretation of an actual person, but from another person's point of view, and therefore it feels like AI. It does not feel like a human person. And we'll talk I think, more about her character as we get deeper into the absolute, plot. Absolutely, she's she's someone who kind of can't be not talked about when talking about this, but in true noir fashion, Cobb tells the femme fatale, Mal, that he cannot trust her anymore, which is proven true moments later when Cobb almost falls to his death because of her. The whole chair thing. The whole chair thing. James Bond style, Cobb is making his way through the mansion, killing every bodyguard in his path. Easily, Cobb reaches the safe, which contains simply one envelope. Before he can read its contents, Sado and Mal enter the room with Arthur as their hostage. Two, two rules are then laid out to the audience. One, if you die in a dream, you wake up. And two, if you get hurt in a dream, you feel that pain. As Mal reminds, all pain is in the mind. We then witness firsthand as Mal shoots Arthur in the knee. As non, je ne regret rien begins to play it becomes clear time is running short just a Cobb, quick aside it's kind of funny that the song is uh in this movie because marion cotillard won her oscar for playing the woman who sings that song in 2007. I, remember, I remember reading that years later i didn't know that at all and then reading that and i was like yo that's a cool piece of trivia Cobb proceeds to shoot everyone in his path including arthur 
In his escape, Cobb then reads the contents of the envelope, which Nolan graciously labeled confidential in case the point was not clear. Um, the dream collapses as Leo, one level down, is pushed into a bathtub, thereby pulling out of the dream, or so we think. Yeah, that bathtub push was really uh, well done. Yeah. It was, if not slow. It sets up how slow things move toward water. <laughs> I, I do love it. Cobb is in a new but nonetheless more frightening environment. The apartment is nice, but outside is a raging revolution, and the protesters are moving closer to them. Cobb, with his shroud of impending doom, tries to continue to interrogate Saito. Saito, however, is not falling for any of this. While on the floor, he notes that the carpet is polyester and not the cotton one he purchased. The architect fucked up. Big time. It's such a small detail, but it makes all the difference. It's Absolutely. one of those things where, like, you don't think you would notice it, but if you went into your apartment and you found that your couch was a different material, you'd notice. Absolutely. The song kicks in again. It is only then that another rule is established. It is possible to make a dream within a dream. Cobb and Arthur, realizing they cannot crack Saito's abandon the, ex the extraction plan, they both get off at the next train station and plan to flee. But first, they need to go to the hotel to get their small suitcases that have nothing inside them. <laughs> because I, I just couldn't see why they needed those suitcases. Anyway, but in the hotel room, Cobb spins the top. As it spins, he raises a loaded gun ever closer to his head. Only when the top spins over will he allow himself to lower the gun. In time, we will come to realize if the top falls, it means he is, in the, he is not in the dream. We, there's also one more indicator. I didn't put it in the notes, but anytime Cobb is wearing his wedding ring, he is in a dream. Every, anytime he is not wearing his wedding ring, he is not in a dream. Is that a fact? Yes. The phone rings, along with a flash of Cobb's children. The call is somber, but vastly important as Cobb has to explain to his children that he cannot come home and that mom is not here anymore. As he speaks, these words, a flash of maul on the ledge flashes momentarily. The call does not last long before Arthur and Cobb leave the hotel. On the helicopter pad is not the ride Cobb and Arthur were waiting for. Instead, Saito is seen inside holding a gun to the architect who built the previous dream's head. Saito offers to let Cobb kill the man who quote-unquote sold them out, but Cobb declines. Too, too barbaric, you know. Don't, don't want to kill him. Either way, Saito has his men drag the architect off the helicopter, so nothing good can come of that. The, that guy's fucked. He's, he's done. All because he fucked up a carpet. <laughs> the dude understands. The dude abides. The dude abides. In the helicopter ride, Saito gets, the, gets to the point very fast. He wants Cobb and Arthur to, to perform Inception. Arthur tells Saito, it is impossible. If you can steal an idea from someone's mind, why can't you plan one day instead? Okay. Here's me planning an idea in your head. I say to you, don't think about elephants. What are you thinking about? Elephants. Right, but it's not your idea because you know I gave it to you. 
The subject's mind can always trace the genesis of the idea. True inspiration's impossible to fake. Cobb, however, is not as dismissive. He tells Saito Inception is possible, but needs to know the details. Who is this going to be performed on, and to what end? Saito explains he needs his competitor's son to break up the empire he is about to inherit. Talk about corporate espionage, right? Yeah. In exchange for performing Inception, Saito will ensure Cobb can go back to America with his magical phone call. Arthur advises that Cobb walk away. With an ace-in-the-hole argument, Saito asks Cobb, Do you want to take a leap of faith? Or become an old man filled with regret, waiting to die alone? Cobb takes the job. On the jet, Sato arranged, uh, arranges to take Cobb and Arthur anywhere. This man has great airport connections. I was just thinking that. I, and going back, I said they, they can very easily fly wherever they want to. They head towards Paris for a new architect. Arthur is still perplexed at the job that Cobb accepted. Cobb reassures him by saying he knows Inception is possible if they go deep enough. He knows because I've done it before. In Paris, Cobb meets up with his mentor and father-in-law professor, Stephen Miles, Michael Caine. <laughs> I just, don't get me wrong, I love Michael Caine, great, great actor. I just don't understand where all this lies in, within the grand scheme of the movie. What, an, old, an older British man? Well, he's an older, Maul is his daughter. You're telling right. me he sired Marion Cotillard? We... Uh, that, my friend, is what we call suspension of disbelief. Hi, th this is just heavy suspension of disbelief. <laughs> and then to my other point, if he doesn't think that uh, Cobb killed Maul, then why the fuck are the police chasing him down? As previously stated, the relationship between the two men is close. Miles trained Cobb in his current vocation, yet Miles cannot see the destructive path Cobb is on. Miles implores, come back to reality, Dom, please. Cobb assures Miles that he, has only, that he only has one job left. It is always the last job. Always. Because always the last. I was thinking that watching this. I'm like, why do these scenarios always come down to it's always one last it's job? It's always one last job. One last job. We're going to do this one more to one All last right, time. All right, we've done this. This is the last time after this. I'm, I can't tell you how many times. I feel like I've seen that scenario. But I, nevertheless, one last job. But he needs an architect. Cobb then expresses he cannot build the dreams he inhabits because Mal won't let me. That's some deep, deep Freudian shit, man. <laughs> but not to fret. Miles has a student who is better than Cobb. Quote, unquote, better. It is then that Miles pulls over Juno. Sorry, Ellen Page. Sorry, Adrienne. Adrian. Ariadne. <laughs> Ariadne. Ad, Ariadne Grande. Ariadne Grande. I heard they were calling her Ariadne Grande. Ariadne Grande. <laughs> Cobb wastes no time at all testing whether Ariadne is as good as Miles assures him. Handing her a piece of paper and pen, Cobb asks Ariadne to draw a maze. Because of the rule of threes, on her third try, Ariadne passed the test and phase two of the interview begins. 
At a cafe in Paris, Cobb and Ariadne carry on. Like Pacino and Swank and Insomnia, Cobb is imparting his wisdom to Ariadne. Only the wisdom wow. here is to teach Ariadne how to build a dream world. This is, I'm sorry. That's, considering I'm the one who's been catching the other Nolan references to other movies, that's actually a really good comparison. Because she kind of looks up to him. Um, yeah. But he's the one who's like, I've seen it all. I know the rules, like whatever. But yeah, they're both men who are just so they've done their job for a while and are just so destroyed by what they have done. But yet they have these invigorating women who are thinking outside the box in ways that these men never have in their career. Okay. Wow. All right. Cool. Keep going. Cobb gives some uh, advice. They say we only use a fraction of our brain's true potential. Now that's when we're awake. When we're asleep, our mind can do almost anything. Such as? Well, imagine you're designing a building, right? You consciously create each aspect. But sometimes it feels like it's almost creating itself, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah like I'm discovering. Genuine inspiration, right? Mm. Now, in a dream, our mind continuously does this. We create and perceive our world simultaneously, and our mind does this so well that we don't even know it's happening. That allows us to get right in the middle of that process. How? By taking over the creating part. Now, this is where I need you. You create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream, and they fill it with their subconscious. And finally, with this last bit of information, fractures the very foundation of Ariadne has. You never remember the beginning of dreams, do you? You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. So... How did we end up here? Realizing she and Cobb have been in a dream the whole time, the world begins to explode. Also, I don't know how those machines actually work. This is not a, like, I, it doesn't, they don't have to like in, be injected into your body. So like, um, how does it work? I don't. I don't, I imagine. It's they just a little... tie tubes around their, around their wrists i don't There's know how it actually a, there, works there, there, ha, there has to be an injection how else why else would they be tying tubes around their wrists but then how does fisher not realize that he was injected this process if and they clearly really need a chemical to access dreams like this that's why they, they have, have a chemist so where does that serum go they would have to inject each other they I would think <laughs> so just if you're all we can cut this but like i imagine that's where nolan I don't know how involved Jonathan was, but I imagine that's where the Nolan brothers, that's where their minds went in writing this. Cause it's like, okay, you come up with the idea in a day, all of a sudden you take a month to write it. And then all of a sudden you take a year to analyze it. And all of a sudden and you're like, it wait, wait, wait. Into 10 and, years. <laughs> and then I imagine the two of them in their underwear, just drinking. And they're just both, it's the scene from the aviator with DiCaprio's in the warehouse and he's in his underwear and he's just like drinking his own urine. And it's like them just erratic. Cause they're like, no, wait, but how do they do this? They need an architect, but what do they have to do? They have to construct the dreams, but what happens? It has to be something that's pulled from reality. And all of a sudden they're both chattering back and forth about the absurdity of this plot. Because when you boil it down, this plot feels a little absurd, but the way it's played out, it's believable enough that anyone else can watch it and go, cool. So that's how it operates. Where people this like you and I- This definitely, there's definitely a lot of drama that's forced in this movie. There's oh, definitely absolutely. things that are like you can take a step back. It's really like not that big of a deal. Calm, <laughs> calm, calm down. <laughs> well, 
they operate, and Nolan's movies operate a lot this way, they operate as if the fate of humanity rests on the shoulders of the characters. Yeah, exactly. Ariadne and Cobb wake up in a warehouse. While Ariadne is horrified, she is also in awe of what she has just witnessed. She wants to go back into the dream world to explore more. Cobb tells Arthur to put them under for five minutes. Another key rule is introduced. Time in a dream lasts longer than in the real world. While the math never makes sense to the audience, Cobb tells Ariadne, in this moment, five minutes equates to an hour in the dream. Um, the dream, dream, much like the previous one, is meant not only to help Ariadne understand the world and the rules of the dream, but help the audience to understand as well. The world is limitless. Physics do not matter. There is the iconic shot of the city of Paris literally folding onto itself. I remember so that, good. seeing that for the first time. I was in awe. I was like, no fucking way. <laughs> but Bacab warns Ariadne not to put places in her dreams that she knows well. Otherwise, the world between real and dream becomes blurred. She's also warned that more, the more she plays with the world, the more attention she will bring to herself. The people within the dreams are projections who stem from the subconscious. The subjects, therefore, has no control over what the projections can do. Deeply embedded in Cobb's subconscious is Maul, who shows up in the dream and shoots Ariadne, thereby waking her up. Rightfully scared, Ariadne jumps out of the dream. Let's note that, that in these dreams, one feels pain and fear, and while subconsciously Ariadne knows she would be fine, seeing Maul approaching and shooting her is no less terrifying. But it's gotta be terrifying. You're literally seeing a person walk up to you with a gun and shoot you <laughs> in the fucking gut. Uh, Cobb hires Ariadne on the spot and tells her she needs a totem, a device conceived by Maul. As Arthur explains, So a totem, you need a small object, potentially heavy, something you can have on you all the time that like, no one else like knows. Like a coin? No, it needs to be more unique than that. This is a... Die. I can't let you touch it, that would defeat the purpose. See, only I know the balance and the weight of this particular loaded die. That way, when you look at your totem, you know beyond a doubt that you're not in someone else's dream. It is important to take a step back and see what other characters' totems are, because they are emblematic of each character's persona. Cobb has a top, an object that is literally spinning in circles until it topples over. Arthur's is a loaded die. He's a character who clearly does not like taking chances, and Ariadne will ultimately have a bishop piece from a chessboard. The piece being from a chessboard, reinforcing her brilliance as a tactician, but also take note of the bishop's place on the board. It sits next to the king and queen and represents the conscience. In this moment, however, Ariadne tells Cobb she's not taking the job and leaves. Cobb tells Arthur, She'll be back. Come, she'll, she'll be back. Come on. They always come back. They always come back. I mean, he's right, ultimately. And to Arthur's dismay, Cobb also says he's going to Mombasa to get Ames on their team. Within the first few minutes, it is not hard to see why Cobb wants to work with Ames. Unlike Arthur, he too believes that Inception is possible. But unlike Cobb, believes it is not just about how deep you can go. The idea being implanted needs to be a simple one. 
You need the simplest version of the idea in order for it to grow naturally. It's a very subtle art. Ames also gives the launchpad idea that start with the relationship with the father. Ames is more than happy to work with Cobb. You son of a bitch, I'm in. <laughs> you son of a bitch, I'm in. You son of a bitch, I'm in. Cobb is then chased by several men throughout the tight and concentrated streets of Mombasa. The chase is both epic and claustrophobic. Compiled with Hans Zimmer's amazing score, the only description for the chase would be Raiders of the Lost Ark meets Blood Diamond. With the extreme luck, chase, uh, the chase ends with Sato showing up and saying, I need to protect my investment. That's a great analogy. I just want to go back. Lost Ark, Raiders of the Lost Ark meets Blood Diamond. That's an incredible way to put it because it's like the drama and the almost, not humor, but the lighthearted like foot chase of it. But it's like, it, it, you yeah, when it. Cobb goes into the cafe and is like, one, ca- one cafe, one cafe. Like, I love it. And the bartender's like, what are you doing? Get out of here. He's yelling. And then <laughs> it leads the bodyguards to see that's where he is. It's true. I, I, it's a great, you know what it is? It's like, I think a lot of action movies and on this, it's like, I think a lot of action movies and a lot of dramas forget to have fun every once in a while back in paris just as cop predicted ariadne comes back to the warehouse once there arthur teaches ariadne more about constructing a dream world we are introduced to the penrose steps a paradox that creates a limited yet never-ending staircase a closed loop arthur also explains the dreams have to be complicated enough that they can hide from projections this of course opens the conversation about mal Arthur tells Ariane that Mal is dead, but was lovely in real life. Still in Mombasa, Cobb, Ames, and Saito meet with the chemist, Yosef uh, Dilip Rea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. hope I pronounced that right. Cobb's demands are steep. He needs a chemist to come into the dream, then a drug that will be able to support the team going three levels deep. Yosef responds that it is possible, but may require a sedative. It is at this moment Saito also announces he will be joining in on the mission. Son of a bitch, I'm in. Son of a bitch, I'm in. You son of a bitch, I'm in. Before Yusuf is hired, he proves how good his serum is by bringing his future employers to his basement. Because what gets you business more than bringing people to your basement? (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say that. It got Buffalo Bill a lot of business. Oh, wait. You want to come to my basement? It puts the lotion in the basket. <laughs> puts the lotion in the fucking basket. <laughs> in the darkness are about 20 old people laying in beds, all dreaming. Aghast at this, Saito finds out that after a while, the machine is the only way people can dream. But this notion is crudely interrupted by an old man who says hauntingly, They couldn't be woken. The dream has become the reality. He's laying out some stoner wisdom. (laughs) This is reality, man. Cobb tests the serum and hires Yosef. On a Mabasa rooftop, Saito, Ames, and Cobb debrief on the coming mission. Saito reveals the target is Robert Michael Fisher. Cully and Murphy, our friends, our buddies back. My man, the Scarecrow. He is about to inherit his father's energy empire. Saito needs the empire to be broken up. Because apparently the Fishers have a monopoly on all the energy in the world, which makes absolutely no sense to me. (laughs) 
Ames, not missing a beat again, asks about Fisher's father. In a short flash, Fisher is seen with his father, Maurice Fisher. Pete... Uh, Postlewaite? Postlewaite, yeah, I think. I don't know. The relationship is not good. Eames is also very curious about Peter Browning, Fisher's godfather and VP to the family business. Saito ensures Ames can spend time with Browning. Eames cop- starts to copy his mannerisms and speech patterns. Like a writer's room, the team assembles in a Parisian warehouse to pitch ideas on how to plant inception. The idea everyone is working around is on the blackboard. Quote, I will split my father's empire. Eames again, leading the charge, insists the team focus on the relationship between Fisher and his father, stating, subconscious is motivated by emotion, not reason. Cobb agrees, but believes that the team should reinforce the idea with a positive, not negative emotion. They land on, my father wants me to be my own man. As the team explores the downtown LA set Ariadne has built, Eames breaks down the plan to the simplest terms yet. On the top level, we open up his relationship with his father. Say, I will not follow in my father's footsteps. Then the next level down, we feed him. I will create something for myself. Then by the time we hit the bottom level, we bring out the big guns. My father doesn't want me to be him. Exactly. To add to the exposition dump, that is the sequence, the idea of time will also be reinforced. Cobb says that he needs the team under for 10 hours. This equates to one week in the first level of the dream, six months in the second level, and 10 years in the third. To come out of each level of the dream, they will require a kick, which is explained as the feeling of falling, you get the jolts you wake, it snaps you out of the dream. Arthur is then seen falling multiple times. Tough stuff for him. Literally, it's a montage of him falling over and over again. The plan is finally set. On a plane ride, Fisher takes every two weeks from Australia to the United States. In the classic Nolan comedy, Saito buys the airline. So I'm guessing his money woes are not too bad. His empire is not as... Like, Saito is pitching this whole Inception thing. Like, I need this guy to break up his father's empire. My company is hurting right now. Right, How right, hurting right. is he if he could buy his own airline? It's interesting to think of the idea of Inception as a concept affecting businesses. And the but idea that seems of some... to be what it's used for most. Right. Or what um, we've been exposed to most. This whole concept of it being something that, like, like I was saying, it's like, it's like a business, of something you can capitalize on. Like, it's a really cool concept, and it makes you realize like it's only that close to being something that if you can control the algorithm as to how and why dreams happen it really could be something that could be created to be uh and i an actual idea that you can profit off of you know it's very nolan of this movie like he turned what could have been fantasy into analysis right it absolutely which is pure nolan of him Right. You know, this movie could, if exploring people's dreams, you would think would be like some fantasy of like epic proportions. Oh, yeah. And not that this isn't, but it's a different kind of fantasy. This is an analysis of the mind and how subconscious affects your conscious. It's different than what I feel like any other director would have done with this movie. Well, the dreams don't break the mold of reality in the way that you would imagine that 
an artist, any artist would just say like, hey, I'm going to go into a dream world. Well, okay, well, there are no rules. Characters can fly and characters can break the rules of, of reality. And all of a sudden, there's, you're embedded in a world of fantasy because it's a dream, quote unquote. And yet, Nolan still embeds his characters in a world where even when they're dreaming, they're still dreaming lifelike scenarios. While all this planning is taking place, Ariane um, Knightley is seeing Cobb use the machine to dream. Curiosity overtakes Ariane as she plunges into Cobb's dreams. Once again, in an almost horror-like sequence, Ariane finds herself on an old, decrepit elevator, taking her from level to level along Cobb's psyche. On the bottom-most level, Cobb is seen sweet-talking with Mal. Mal it's catches pretty her. gross. It really is. It's really next level. It's like, they're just talking, oh, I love you. Oh, my God. We're going to be together. This movie went for the R rating. I mean, we these dreams would probably be a little different. Mal catches Ariadne, but before she can attack, Cobb takes Ariadne to a different level in the dream world. Ariane notes that Cobb broke his own rule. His dreams are based on his memories. This is why he has a dip, such difficulty understanding if he is in reality or not. In a way, he is just as disconnected from the world as Leonard from Memento. I want to pause right here because I was thinking this in watching this again, is that this has never felt more like Memento, or I don't want to say a Memento sequel, but this has never felt more like Memento than now in Nolan's career, post-Memento. Like this literally, Leonard and Cobb, I would say are, almost interchangeable characters like uh, the only thing that's not motivating them the only thing that separates the characters is their motivations leonard is looking for justice based on a murder a, a rape the rape and murder of his wife Cobb is looking for justice based on his wife's death like in general i mean it's kind of like they both have the wife thing going the dead wife thing going for them i classic. mean that's classic but in that sense, both men are driven to almost madness by the memory of their dead wives, like like the ghost of their of their of their dead wife. You they're know, what both I mean? like, driven mad by memory in general, and they're both in a questionable reality in their own way. Cobb questions his reality because he's been living in a dream world for so long. Right. And Leonard questions his reality because every few minutes it restarts. Absolutely. And I neither mean, men should be driving. Neither men should be driving. That is what links these movies. Absolutely. I think and that's I mean, the common trend in all Nolan's movies. I mean, you're some people about, should not be driving. Uh, it's, it's obvious. It's a, that's a very clear theme in many of his movies. I just don't have really gotten that deep into it. But you're, you know, in talking about casting, I mean, I think that Guy Pierce could have played this role for that same reason. This is just a Leonard type role. This is just a, um, it's that lost male protagonist who's like, I have an ambitious idea and I'm going to do it live or die because I have a, a dead wife and I have motive because I cannot get rid of this memory of this dead wife. And obviously there's more to it than that. But that is like a clear motive that links these two characters all throughout watching this movie. I was like, this is just memento all over again.
but for totally different reasons. In the presence of his children, Cobb once again looks away before their faces are revealed. This, more than the totem, is how he differentiates reality from the dream. He cannot sully the image he has of his children with mere projections. Ariadne, horrified, runs to the elevator and finds herself in a destroyed hotel room. It doesn't take long for Maul to present herself in full femme fatale form. Maul presents her sexual prowess and advantage, asking Ariane, do you know what it is like to be a lover, a part of a whole? Falling uh, up with her, She falling lays it up. on thick. Marion Cotillard pulls it off, but oh, that, of is, that is uh, by full strength of her will. Some of her lines are just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, this is supposed to be the dream-like version of the perfect woman gone mad and now dead. So, like, it needs to be as perfect as Nolan sees it or as Cobb sees it, and they really just Isn't that the most sickening part, though? This is Cobb's fantasy wife. This is what he thinks of his wife. This is the memory he has left of her. But that, I was just going to say, that's the eternal debate about all of this. It's like, yeah, this is a version of a character. This is really just an interpretation of one man's point of view of a person who wants to, we really never know this actual character. No. So Cobb, you want to know how you could tell if you're in reality or not? If Maul <laughs> is trying to kill someone, you're in a fucking dream. But following up with Riddle, I will tell you a riddle. You're waiting for a train, a train that will take you far away. You know where you hope this train will take you, but you don't know for sure. But it doesn't matter. How can it not matter to you where that train will take you? Cobb enters the room to answer the riddle, because we'll be together. Ariadne and Cobb take the elevator back to the real world. Shaken, Ariadne tells Cobb it is not safe for him to go into Fisher's dream with Maul. Cobb does not deny this, but is nonetheless shocked when Ariadne says that she will be joining the heist. You son of a bitch! I mean! At the hour and six minute mark, the dream heist is about to begin. The team and Fisher board the plane. Before they go under, Cobb makes his face known to Fisher by stealing and handing back Fisher's passport. Once the plane has taken off, the flight attendant then drugs Fisher and the dream heist begins. <sighs> Immediately, there is something wrong. Within the dream, there is a torrential downpour. Arthur, Ames, and Saito commandeer Fisher in a taxi. Gunfire goes off. Arthur did not do his research. The team didn't know that Fisher's mind has been trained to counterattack infiltration. Rough stuff for uh, Arthur there. It's a tough first day in the job. Cobb, however, is unable to help his comrades because in the middle of the road, a freight train comes barreling down, smashing every car in its path. This is not an unfamiliar train. It is from Cobb's subconscious. A car chase ensues and everyone makes it to the warehouse, but Saito has been shot. When Ames goes to shoot Saito to wake him, Cobb reveals a terrible truth. If they die in the dream, they do not wake up. Instead, they go to Limbo, a place Cobb is all too familiar with. There is no way out but to complete the mission, and fast because Fisher's security will be hunting them down. Ames, under the shroud of Browning's projection, goes undercover to talk to Fisher. 
a safe next to Maurice Fisher's bed needs to be opened. That is what Fisher was abducted for, or so Fisher thinks. The scene reinforces just how strained Fisher's relationship with his father was. As we learned, the last words father said to son was simply disappointed. Damn. That's some heavy shit. Yeah, it's some deep shit. Again, that's taking the a fear that, and not just a fear, but something that Freud would tell you you're dreaming about. Your father telling you he's disappointed in you. And this happened to Fisher for real. Yeah, know? I mean, that's the, that's the whole point of his character. You know, he's doing this because he wasn't good enough in his father's eyes. All the while, Ariadne is interrogating Cobb about Mal and his time in limbo. Listen, I like Ariadne. Ellen Page is great. But it's also kind of like, I've known you for like three weeks. Why don't you get <laughs> off my back? <laughs> hey, fuck you, man. In a Rashomon manner, Cobb tells the partial truth that he and Maul were in limbo for 50 years, but that Maul had lost her way. Quote, she had locked something away, something deep inside her, a truth that she had once known but chose to forget. Limbo became her reality. Cobb is a testament to what life in a dream can do to one's reality. But in this moment, Cobb is consciously not sharing with Ariadne that the reason Mao lost all her sense was that he incepted Mao into madness. Cobb also shares with Ariadne the night of Mao's suicide. It was in the broken hotel room in Cobb's dream. Mao, unable to accept reality, set an elaborate trap for Cobb to either die or wish he was dead. She called the cops and said that Cobb was threatening her and that she was scared. And then she jumps off the building. This whole idea of being stuck with someone, kind of not accepting the truth. I mean, that's a huge metaphor for how people lie to themselves in relationships in order to stay stuck. And uh, I mean, just everything about Cobb and Mal's relationship is, I, I mean, it's the essence of a toxic relationship that's presented. He's putting as it nicely. I mean, it really... I mean, <laughs> Because that's really what it is. This is an exaggerated version of a toxic relationship. It's just another layer. It's just like, well, what it, what was the relationship really like? What was really going on here? What was worth holding on to and what was letting go? And those are the bigger questions. But like, it's also like that whole idea of like, well, I, I couldn't accept reality. I, I, we stayed there for what felt like 50 years. Like sure, in a dream, it was 50 years and you can break down the science of the dream. But this whole idea of being trapped in a relationship and trapped in a reality where you feel like time has stopped, like it's a brilliant metaphor all of a sudden that you're living in this world you don't want to live in because it literally feels like time has completely stopped where you are. For 50 you know what I mean? years, you are with this person. You know what I mean? Literally 50 years. You spent an entire lifetime together. But like that's 50 years. Like, that's how old baby Yoda is. 50. <laughs> Like, <laughs> but that whole concept of like, we were only together for so long, but it felt like an eternity. The time for sentimental conversations is quickly interrupted by the subconscious security breaching the building. Cobb with a mask interrogates Fisher for a combination to the safe. Fisher gives the numbers 528491. Fisher is then drugged and put into a truck. Didn't know you could drug people in a dream world. That's some dark <laughs> stuff. The truck now has the entire crew with Yosef driving at full speed. Yosef has a rough drive ahead of him, 
with bullets constantly flying. It is time to go into the second dream level, but Cobb has an idea. They need Mr. Charles. Arthur does not like this idea as it, quote, involves telling the mark that he's dreaming, which involves attracting a lot of attention to us. The plan becomes clear as everyone enters level two of the dream world. It is a classy hotel. Fisher is sitting at the hotel bar talking to a beautiful woman. Cobb approaches Fisher and tells him his name is Mr. Charles. As seen when a subject becomes aware they are in a dream, the world becomes less stable. The bar tilts until Cobb can calm Fisher down. Cobb leads Fisher to hotel room 528 with Arthur and Ariadne. There, they turn Fisher's mind to believe Browning is responsible for the kidnapping. Fisher's projection, not Ames as Saito thought, enters the room and confirms the theory. Browning says he didn't want Fisher to, to fall to Maurice's last taunt, a challenge for you to build something for yourself by telling you you're not worthy of his accomplishments, end quote. To garner more information, Cobb suggests Fisher enter Browning's subconscious. The team enters the next dream level, with the exception of Arthur. As the car tumbles and turns on level one, the halls of level two lose gravity, leaving Arthur to need to figure out how to create a kick with no gravity, and leading to some of the best fight scenes ever. I would say Bad potentially ass. ever choreographed on film. Badass. That fight scene is why Wally Pfister won his Oscar. The ability to film a fight that is literally spinning is just miraculous. I will say, as much as we've been, you know, stroking this man, um, it's not just, this is the first time, it's not just a visual representation. Like, oh, look how lush the colors are and look at, like, the landscapes and look at how the wide scopes of the shot. But this is the first time we've seen at least in Nolan's career that he has taken himself completely outside the box the way that he films the layers the levels of the dream worlds and just the visual contrast the snowy mountains and then the deep, you know yellow um lighting of the of the hallways of the hotels it's just there are scenes in this movie that completely contrast each other but because it's a dream world it's okay uh, level three revealed to be a large fortress amid snowy mountains. Very Bond villain. Funny you say that. I thought the same thing. I don't even know what Bond villain, but there's definitely a Bond villain who lives up there. <laughs> uh, die another day, right? Didn't he have the ice castle? Yeah, he did. Oh, there's always like some stupid. It looks awful. Ice it's really awful. We're not even gonna go there. The goal is clear. Fisher needs to get to the fortress safe to see what is inside. The issue is timing. Almost immediately upon entering level three, Yusuf plays the music from level one. He is about to start the kick in what is the slowest car fall ever. Another understatement. Ariadne does the math. If the car falls in 10 seconds, that gives Arthur three minutes, which gives the rest 16 minutes. The music also starts an avalanche. Fisher pops out of the snow, shouting what's arguably the funniest line. Couldn't someone have dreamt of a goddamn beach? It's just an un like such an underplayed moment. He literally is saying like what we're all thinking. 
why the fuck did you choose the snowy abyss? <laughs> I love it. It's so much. I mean, it's so it's so good. I mean, the the movie is incredibly self aware where it needs to be. Sato, who is coughing up blood in level two, gets Fisher to the fortress. Cobb, with his sniper, is watching over Fisher as he approaches the vault. The subconscious knows Cobb's weakness. Mal descends from the ceiling and shoots Fisher before Cobb shoots her. With Fisher seemingly dead, Cobb calls the mission, surely thinking Fisher will be condemned to limbo as he once was. Ariadne comes up with a new plan. Her and Cobb will go and find Fisher in limbo and bring him back. Ames and Saito will watch guard over their bodies. Ames also sets up a defibrillator onto Fisher's chest. Nice to know that three levels deep in dreams, there is still medical equipment in the middle of a room. Good grief. Ariadne really knew how to plan a room. The beach that has been seen numerous times comes into sight. This time, Ariadne emerges from the crushing waves. The city that Mal and Cobb built was vast, but eroding. Who knows how many years the buildings have been standing, given the way the time works in limbo. Cobb leads Ariadne to the apartment him and Mal used to share. It is time to confront the source of pain and wash away the guilt. Cobb confesses that Maul could not come back to reality because he incepted her during their stay in Limbo. Cobb broke into Maul's vault and spun the top. Limbo truly did become her reality. Maul, in exchange for Cobb, will give up Fisher. Cobb agrees. Though Ariadne objects, Cobb tells her he needs to stay in Limbo to find Saito who has surely died by now. And Cobb is not wrong, Saito is dead. Ariadne pushes Fisher off the roof. It's pretty funny how she just like carelessly threw him off the fucking roof too. <laughs> Ariadne reminds Cobb not to lose his way and jumps as well. Not a moment too soon, as Arthur plays the music and Ames realizes the kick is coming. Fisher reawakens in the fortress and enters the giant safe. Inside lays his dying father, who again repeats, disappointed. Fisher, I know you were disappointed. I couldn't be you. Maurice Fisher, no, no, no. I was disappointed that you tried. How much would people pay for this kind of therapy, huh? Yo, this is neck. Uh, this Ma is uh, priceless therapy. Priceless. Maurice points to the smaller safe next to him. Inside, is a pinwheel from Fisher's childhood. For the first time, the weight of his father's death consumes him. All the kicks line up. Ames blows the bottom of the fortress, leading everyone to fall. Arthur blows the elevator, plunging them awake. And the car finally hits the water. In level one, Fisher explains to Browning, Ames in disguise, that the inception took. Fisher plans to break down his father's empire. Cobb, meanwhile, still in limbo, is holding Maul. Cobb, after all this time, is ready to let Maul go, remembering that they did that they did in fact grow old together. The familiar flashbacks become new once more as Cobb and Maul are shown as old. Though the cuts do somewhat resemble Cialis commercials, it is, it is important to show the couple was in limbo for fifty years, and they spent <laughs> an entire life together. The opening scene play begins again as Cobb washes up on the shore. He has taken Saito, who has been in limbo for many years now. 
he is only pulled from his new reality when Cobb reminds him of their common philosophy. I'm an old man, filled with regret, waiting to die alone. Cobb's eyes on the plane open. In a return of the King Way, he looks to all of his friends who smile and nod approvingly. With the exception of Fisher, who looks as though he has had an epiphany, again reinforcing the inception took. Sato, true to his word, makes his phone call, begging the question once again, who did he call? Needless to say, the phone call worked. Cobb walks through immigration, greeted by Miles, Uncle Kane. Cobb is finally in the home that he has fled. Not sure if this is real, he spins the top. Before he can get an answer, for the first time, he looks at his children's faces. They do not appear to have aged a day. Reality is no longer matters if this is reality to Cobb. He is at home with his family in one of the most iconic film endings ever. Nolan ends the top spinning and cuts out before we get a definitive answer. The end. And then you cut into. I mean, I mean, one of the most iconic film endings ever, at least of the generation we're living in. But I would say ever. I mean, the fact that, and you and I can do this now. We can just off the books, but the fact that we really never know. Really never. Let's talk about this real quick. Do you think he's still in a dream, or do you think he's in reality? It's a Schrodinger's cat situation. I know this is a cop out, kind of kind of a cop out answer, Ooh. but I think well, I think there is no answer. I think it's because I think he's in a dream or he's not. Either way you spin it, no pun intended. No oh. matter which, no matter which way you spin it, the whole point of the end of this movie is that there's no definitive answer. It's his most ambiguous ending to date if only to just keep us guessing. What do I think? Do I like to think of the Hollywood ending? Actually, no, I take it back. I like to think this is not everything you just said. I'm back and back peddling everything I'm about to say. This is too good of an ending. What here's the thing though, right? Why would if he was still in a dream, why would he see his children's faces? Why would we, the audience, see the faces? The only way we see the children's faces and the reality take form is that he has broken the dream. He's home, right? I, like, I think that he knows what his children's faces look like. That was never the problem. The problem was that he didn't want to look at them when he was in a dream because he didn't want to corrupt their image. But now that he has gotten rid of Maul and found, quote-unquote, peace, well, peace of mind, I would think that he can look on his children's faces guilt-free. Like I wrote, it doesn't matter whether this is reality anymore. Because to him, it doesn't matter. Which goes, kind of goes hand-in-hand with what I'm saying about it being a Schrodinger's cat situation. Like, it doesn't matter if he's dreaming or not. It doesn't matter if he's looking at his kids or not. The whole point is he has to get over the guilt of his wife's death, which is kind of what is, is that's the whole point of his character arc. And so, he did. Good job. Good job. No, this is definitely a, 
half glass full, half glass empty kind of movie. It asks you, are you a pessimist or are you an optimist? Absolutely. Because naturally, I remember for years thinking like, oh, he's still in the dream. And I just remember accepting like, oh, he has to still be in the dream. No one is cynical. There's no way he can get out of this. And it wasn't until a few years late, uh, later, like until a few years ago, where I was like, you know what? Like, it's the whole point that we'll be asking this forever that makes it a Schrodinger's cat situation. It doesn't matter if he's in or out. Like, we'll never know. And that's what keeps us talking about it. Yeah. So uh, uh, you want to give us your final thoughts? Going off of what I said earlier about this being the movie that Nolan put in his back pocket that he's wanted to do. I don't want to say it's that he put all of his eggs in this basket, but like this movie really was, you can feel like it's his baby. Like this is the thing that he wanted to do to do something and speak his own voice about it more so than Memento or Insomnia or following or anything of his own original work. This is something that has expanded beyond whatever he's wanted to say in ways that have, that he never has since. And you know how I feel about a movie like Interstellar in terms of this. And it's just, or even Dunkirk, it's just like he's expanded in different ways. But this is arguably his most personal work to date. Um, it's never felt more there's been no film that we you and i have watched thus far in his career you know going from following to now that has felt more personal than this um for me and then to me it's just like that makes it special i mean um robin and i robin's always giving me shit because i always say like she loves this movie and i'm always like this movie's good it's not his best and she like kind of gets like irked when i say that because she loves she thinks this is is his best movie she this is her favorite nolan movie and whatever and like and at the same time like as much as i give her shit like this is probably the most intricate and original idea he's ever come up with um Uh, but i do want to hear your own thoughts in your own words so it's like you it's not my favorite nolan film by any means but i do think that it is his most imaginative uh film to date like we said during the podcast and like you were just expressing this idea of the dream world could have been you know anyone's but nolan spun it in such a way that only he could have thought of wild jokes could be made about this film and people can bash it all they like. You can't deny how innovative and genius this was. This is such an original concept, which is something you just don't see in Hollywood anymore. And Nolan got to make it. It's a multi-million dollar project of of a brand new IP. Who That's unheard of that uh, someone is allowed to do that. So... I respect this movie more than I think I like it, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And again, I do really love this movie. I just think that the world it builds is more interesting than the characters and maybe plot per se. Like I said, some of the dramas laid on pretty thick. So Josh, you want to give us your pick of the week? (laughs) Um, the film I'm going to go with is um, Under the Skin. That's an 20, amazing movie. From 2014. Um, I don't know if you and I have ever 
talk about this film in terms of the claustrophobic paranoia. I'm trying to go for the deeply intense kind of uh, analysis of, um, of films. I remember seeing Grand Budapest Hotel with a friend and um, a preview for that film came on under the skin and it said, um, the next Stanley Kubrick in giant letters. And I was like, okay, guy, that's not the boldest statement you can make as a person, you know? And I remember watching that movie a year later and being very confused and feeling like it was artsy just to be artsy and I didn't love it. And like, it was one of those movies, I'm sure you've had them, where it took me, I think it was my second or third try where I watched it and I was like, oh, I get it. Because it's, it's horror and it's sci-fi and it's drama and it's very abstract and it's very artistic and very strange. I don't know. It's, it's not a broad recommendation, but that's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick to my guns through and through. <laughs> so great choice. Great choice. My pick, I'm going to go with go something, with it, again, completely different. And I like it. I think it's good. We have to go with different. Go on. I'm going to go with Wally, the Pixar movie. Again, who doesn't need a laugh? And it not only will you get a laugh, but hopefully you'll get a life lesson out of it. And these are lessons we really need to start taking hold of. I'm not trying to make this political at all, but there's a lot to be said in that movie. And I think we're heading toward a dark future that is very similar. Um, but the first half of that movie, when it's just Wally and Eve on the planet, it is literally a Charlie Chaplin film. It is charming and funny and witty and beautiful. Cannot recommend it enough. Steven, I don't want to get too into it because we should probably save it for another recording, but that's probably one of the most relevant and uh, <laughs> unfortunately relevant. Um, and one of the most um, accurate you know, answers you can give to any kind of recommendation someone could watch. Because while someone may not watch it and think, wow, this is what I want for the future, it's something that people will probably watch and say, oh, this is very realistic for the future. Um, it's one of those kind of inevitable things I remember seeing in 2008, I guess it was, um, and thinking like, wow, this is kind of ahead of its time. It's very, or it's very relevant. It's very timely. And then like, it's one of those idiocracy type scenarios. It's one of those movies that's like, oh. Or like The Simpsons where you were watching it and you're like, oh shit. Don't actually realize watching it like, oh no, this is actually a lot more accurate than I would like it to be. And There's kind of like your pick, like I said before, it's almost a silent film for like half of it, which yeah. I truly appreciate. Right, and you you almost need that every now and again. You can only do so many dialogue pieces and think pieces, and which are great. But like, at the same time, when you dial back and you're not saying anything at all, and you're just observing your situation, you're observing humanity. It's one of the rare movie romances that actually works for me. And I, it's absolutely. between two robots. So. All right, everyone. I think that'll do it for this um, episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway? As always, you can find me at Mr. Film Art on you, Instagram. And as always, you can find Mr. Film Art at, on Instagram, Stephen, Mr. Film Art. He's got Until the, then, everyone, just keep dreaming. Keep, just keep dreaming. Just keep dreaming.